0: Today's session, Micro Most Common, and actually if there's a subtitle, it would be projecting the future of the church from the history of the church. You know, microchurch is the most common form of church in the history of the church and in the world that we live in today, and actually in the United States, although because it doesn't get so much attention, you might not know that. The purpose of what we're going to talk about today is not to convince you to do something, but to encourage you in the thing that you already are trying to do. I want us to consider for a moment the sorry state of the church right now in America. You know following World War II for decades church attendance was very stable. It's up there in the high 50s and then about 20 years ago things began to come unraveled and we've lost about 20% of our attendance in the last 20 years and that was before the COVID thing hit. Now, We know that some people have taken great advantage of what they've done with COVID, uh, the whole Zoom thing. They've actually grown and have expanded their footprint. That's a wonderful thing, but we're also hearing that across the board, perhaps 30% of the people who were attending church in 2019 won't be back darkening the doors of a church. We know that pastors are quitting their jobs across the country. This is tragedy. It's a scary time. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's a time for hope because maybe God is doing something new and he's using this crisis to kind of reinvigorate the church. I'm not going to say revival because of the connotations of revival, but reinvigorate. Help us to find our way. And so we're looking at three big problems in America. The first is, the post-Christian mindset of the United States. The second is a a whole culture of spectatorship in the church. We have built this thing, we've intentionally built it, and now it's come back to bite us. And then the third, I want to call reversion to the mean. By reversion to the mean, I mean this. I manage my own investments. And so if, if the if the stock market is moving and the 200 day average is such and such, it's, it's moving up or moving down. It doesn't really matter if it gets real far off of that. It's that average, that mean it's going to come back to the average. So if things are really flying high, I need to be really careful. Maybe it's a time to sell some stuff. If things are way below the mean, then perhaps it's a time to begin to buy because things are going to pop upwards. And so When I'm talking about reversion to the mean in this sense, I'm probably talking more about reversion to the norm. Although we're going to talk about the averages, but I want to talk about the norm in terms of church. And again, I'm not here to convince you to do something. I'm not selling something. I'm here to kind of reinforce who you are and what you do and and how you do it. And so as we get into this, just let's look at the bad news a little bit. Pre-COVID, 6 out of 10 Protestant churches were either plateaued or they were declining. This is kind of scary. I mean, this is like 2018 numbers are kind of the latest numbers that you can get pre-COVID. Half of the churches in America had seen less than 10 people come to Christ, and many had seen no one come to Christ. You know, there was a time that the church saw itself as a missionary organization that reached into the community in, in a multiplicity of ways, not just evangelism. Uh, And certainly not just come and go to church with us. But we're here to serve. We're here to change the community. We're here to meet the needs of the downtrodden. Kind of a Luke 4.18 stance for the church. And as such, then they will know we are Christians by our love. And that drew people to know Jesus Christ. And so the church didn't exist for itself. It existed for the community roundabout. And that was a really, really good thing, and that brought people to Christ. That brought the church into high esteem in the culture and the community. And, you know, we've kind of lost some of that. We have made a very big deal out of the whole multi-site thing. It gets a lot of press. There's a lot of books written about it. But you know that only about 3% of the churches in the United States are doing multi-site? Uh, it's, it's kind of a sorry figure. Uh, the, the number of churches that we could call mega churches, if you assume that mega is a 1,000 or larger is about 10% of the church. And so this is not the norm at all, and yet it's the thing that gets the most attention. And it's the thing that everybody tries to emulate, oftentimes without having the gifts to do it, and that becomes a path toward self-defeat. Here's another statistic that's interesting, and this is 2018. 68% of churches had nothing to do with a missionary enterprise in their own country 68 percent of churches had nothing to do with church planting on the other hand there is some very good news and that is that 32 percent of the churches in the united states uh, according to a gallup poll uh, said that they had at least put money or they had put members out there to help with the church plant somewhere now Only about 7% of churches, which is also good news because a decade before that number was about 4% of churches had actively initiated a church plant from their own congregation. And as we're looking at this, because of exponential largely, that number has almost doubled to 7%. That's a very, very good thing. And if we can keep that up, uh, they're telling us if we get to 16% of churches having reproduced themselves, then we've hit a tipping point. Or that'll become the new norm. That'll become the thing that people talk about, that they write about. And I think we're well on the way toward that happening. But I want to get into the negative stuff and then get into what I see as the positive stuff. And so let's just talk a little bit about the post-Christian mindset of America. For one thing, we have generations now that are almost worshiping science. And basically worshiping science in the form of Darwinism. We, as a culture... Tend to see everything through the filter of Darwinism. The weird thing is this: that science, in in many quarters, cosmology, uh, physics, all that, are are moving around. Uh, I mean, going back to Edwin Hubble and the Big Bang, there if there was a creation, there had to be a creator. Even in biology, which is the holdout, um, you know, Darwinism has been debunked for a long time. Evolution happens, natural selection happens, but we don't have enough time for all of these things to have taken place in the way that Darwin said that they did, but our culture has adopted Darwinism. And so here's what we see, that ancient man, you know, prehistoric man lived a very rudimentary life. And then there came uh, vestiges of civilization, but those civilizations were barbaric. And then we come along to the advent of religion as as a factor that begins to, Um, Modulate civilization. And then Christianity has its heyday. All of this is part of social evolution, social Darwinism, if you would. But now we've come to the point where post-enlightenment thought has taken over and we no longer need Christianity. It served a purpose for a while and that purpose has gone away. And oh, by the way, we get our information about the church from the internet, mostly from social media or the news, and it tends to be negative. And so we look at the church as Judgmental. we look at it as hypocritical, we look at it as unnecessary, we look at it as not really serving any positive function in the culture that we live in. The judgmental part can come from evangelism. Sometimes we're trying to argue our friends into a relationship with Jesus or argue them into come and go to church with me, which is what we're going to get into in, in the next minute. But I want to talk for just a little bit about my own life and evangelism. You know, I've viewed apologetics back in the 1970s. It kind of worked because people had more of a logical mindset that if I can out-argue you, I can win you to Christ. Now, sadly, what I found out was I could out-argue people, but I seldom won them to Christ through doing that. In fact, I'd make enemies out of them sometimes, or i just defeat them, and it really didn't serve a real positive purpose. And so I've come to see apologetics in my own life as Reinforcing my faith in Jesus Christ. I read a lot of biology today and I read a lot of astronomy. I'd like to read physics because I want to know that I can trust in Genesis chapter 1 to 3 and certainly that Romans chapter 1 is valid in my life because that's the backdrop for everything that I believe about Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so I'm looking at apologetics for Ralph. I'm looking at apologetics as a pastor. I'm teaching the people this so they'll know why it's safe to believe what they believe in Jesus, not so they can go bang somebody over the head with it. And what I'm talking to you about, church here, I'm not here to beat up on the mega church guys or to beat up on the guys that are doing launch large or all that. I'm just here to help you believe in the thing that you believe that you're called to do and to do a better job of it. As we get into... The fact that the church seems to not have much value to the culture that we live in, I think we have to go directly to this whole uh, spectator mentality that we've taught our people in church. I mean, come and see the show. Bring your friends to come and see the show. And then the process is, bring your friends. We'll get them converted. We'll put them through a little class. We'll get them to be good volunteers, and we'll get them to dump money in offering. That's the way it looks to the world. And you know what? That's the way it looks to the children of current church members who are growing up without Christ and without church in their life. I think that we have basically become salt without flavor. Uh, we've watered down the gospel in our presentation of it. We don't talk about hell. Uh, we, we, tithing is now 2 or 3% rather than the 10% that I read about in the Bible. Um, we're, we're content with volunteerism rather than mobilized missionaries. All of these things have, have come about to just weaken the church. And, and and the people who should most be part of the church are our own children and grandchildren. But they're coming up, and they're seeing something that they don't like, and they're turning their back on the thing, too. That's a scary thing, and it's something that we're going to have to deal with. The third thing that's important to me is what I call reversion to the norm. Has it ever struck you as interesting or ironic that the countries that we used to send missionaries to, we still send missionaries. But we were the dominant missionary force, and we probably still are. I want to be careful how I say that. But these countries are now sending missionaries to us. You know, I had an experience in D.C., gosh, 20 years ago, where I met a guy who was one of 150 missionaries from a large African megachurch, a church in Nigeria, and they had 150 missionaries. I was coaching a guy while I was in Hawaii who was a missionary from a church in Ghana. Now, the, the, the guy's an engineer, he's a smart guy, he's Bible, he's doing microchurch. Uh, I didn't even have the term microchurch in my vocabulary at the time, but that's what was going on. He was a freelance pastor sent from an African nation to the United States. I've met professors from China. I know quite a few people in China, spent quite a bit of time uh, in Shanghai, Beijing, um, Hainan, different places in China. And I know people who have come here to teach in a university, but they really came as an underground missionary to our country. If their country knew they were doing it, they'd be in trouble. If our country knew they were doing it, well, it's probably a little safer for them to do that. But these places where uh, the, the gospel is in repression in some situations or where it's, it's suffering under poverty are, are the places where life is happening and Christianity is growing at a rapid pace. And it turns out that most of those places the norm is for the church to be quite small for various reasons. And so, and so as we think about this, I want you, of course, to go back and think about the first three centuries of church history. It didn't take long for the norm to appear. You know, we look at the book of Acts, and I think, unfortunately, in a way, The first thing that we see is this mega church in Jerusalem. We see this overnight expansion of the church. I mean, one day from, you know, the morning of Pentecost to the evening of Pentecost. And we get the impression this is what it's supposed to be all about. But it, you know, didn't really follow that these people were doing what Jesus told them to do. Get out of town with the gospel until Acts chapter 8 when they did get out of town with the gospel. And from then until Constantine, the norm for the church was small groups, usually meeting in homes. The pastor is freelance. We'd call it a microchurch today. They trained people from within. There was the advent of, of what rudimentary seminaries along the way, but certainly not in the book of Acts. And so the norm was small. Now, this explosive growth in the first three centuries of the church, what do we lay it to? Well, a lot of people say, The thing they had going for them was persecution. It's certainly the thing that benefited them in getting the gospel out of Jerusalem and into the hinterlands. And so I want us to look at these things that we would consider negative factors as a possible asset for churches in different cultures. And then while we don't have the same asset, if that's what you would call it, that they do, we certainly have the choice to emulate them. And that's where we want to go with this thing. You know, I look at India. I met a woman from India. She's actually an American. She grew up very, very wealthy. She's laid down her life for the gospel, and she lives in India. and And they have literally hundred thousand churches that have come out now. Most of them are village churches. Most of their, them are in poverty. But the one unifying factor that they all have is they all come under the oppression of Hinduism. Now, in a way, you have to call that an asset. Because Hinduism is keeping them from doing the megachurch thing. It's forcing them to live with the people around them in a relational way because they don't have the ability to do the things that we've done to insulate themselves against the culture around. They have to stay sensitive to the culture because if they don't, the culture is going to get them. And sadly, we know that in India, a lot of times Christians come under the kind of persecution that just is violent people die lose their faith i have a friend whose grandmother was burned at the stake for her faith in jesus christ his father around the time of world war ii on uh had planted 350 churches in india almost all of them were house churches we would call them micro churches today uh, he'd go to to uh, china And recently, there's massive persecution against the church. I mean, even the state churches in China, I read an article this week, the ones that are sponsored by the state are required to submit their sermon to an officer of the Communist Party every week. And they have to see the gospel through the filter of what they call socialism, what we call communism. They're not allowed to criticize leadership, all of these things. But you know, a number of years ago, I spent several different trips in China. But I was in one place, which they say is kind of the birthplace of of modern Christianity in China, the birthplace of the strong underground church movement that got going way back in the 1940s. And I was with 17 pastors. The smallest of their churches had 4,000 people in it. The largest had 11,000 people. They had these incredible church buildings, usually built on the grounds of a factory. And that's what gave them protection. They're illegal. They're underground. But the guy is a rich guy. And he owns his land, of course, where the factory is. And they were able to build. And some of these are just marble-clad buildings. But, you know, not too long ago, I actually saw in the news a picture of one of those churches where I had preached being destroyed They showed the wrecking ball swinging against the building. And now, so the church in China, once again, is is in repression. But you know what happened? In 1948, there's a million Christians in China. In 1978, when Nixon and Kissinger went there and China kind of opened its doors to the West, there's 75 million Christians in that country. The church grew 75 times as large under persecution. You would have to say, that that persecution that forced them into neighborhoods and into to, to, to remote villages and, you know, whatever, that forced the church to be relational without a lot of program, actually was an asset to them. We don't have that asset. We don't want that asset. But we have a choice. I look at Europe. I spend a lot of time in Europe. And, you know, I know that the church in England is kind of resuscitating. It's coming back to life. A lot of it has to do with Alpha. And Alpha has to do with table talks. Invite people to a dinner. They can sit around. They hear a little presentation. They can argue. They can say anything they want. In fact, that's part of the foundation of Alpha. You know, we want to hear what you have to say. And it may disagree with what we have to say, but say it. We want to hear it. And we build relationships. And people come to Christ in that. But now... Alpha has become a church planting movement in England. You know, I was in a situation in Holland not too many years ago where uh, a guy was so excited. Now, he's an attorney. He started out as a freelance pastor, although the church outgrew him. It started out in a living room. Uh, there's 500 people in the church. They're meeting in a public school. This is really good, but he's really excited. I'd been there two or three times, and he takes me in the city center of the town where he lived, a town of about 40,000, 50,000 people, and, and there's this huge Protestant church building that's been turned into a museum. And he's so excited because there's now a church meeting in that building. And so we go in, and it's a proper museum and all that. But we come off, and there's this little tiny alcove. And there's a church of seven people meeting in there. And he's excited about this. Now, he's pastoring 500 people. But he's excited because he's come to a limit where there's not a whole lot more people coming to his church. But there's people over there doing that thing. And again, it's micro... In its size, as we get into the United States today, you know the, the the median size church, and that's the number that we throw around a lot. Median means half the churches are bigger and half the churches are smaller. The break point is seventy-five people, but the mean size, the average, the you know add them all together and divide by the number that you that you put together, comes out to around fifty people. So micro church is kind of the norm. In church in America and so as we look at this thing I think what we're going through with the the, the, the loss that we suffered in the mega church era where the roots got cut out from under the tree because you know the big churches could run programs people find Jesus in the small churches they migrate to the big churches and then the small churches die that's the phenomenon that happened the last 20 years and it was masked by the success of the mega churches because the overall numbers shrank more slowly than they would otherwise. But we're at a point where now we're at a tipping point. Things are going down and they're going down really fast. And the COVID thing has, has has facilitated this. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. But we're coming back to where we're going to probably have to do church in the way that has pretty much been church in the norm now. Does that mean that there won't be mega churches? Of course, there'll be mega churches. Does that mean that some people won't succeed with launching large and throwing two hundred thousand dollars into a church? Of course, they're going to continue to do that unless we come under rampant persecution. But what I'm here to say to you, again, what I started with, I'm not here to sell you something. I'm not even here to convince you of something other than the fact that the road that you are traveling is the right one. The place that you're going has immense possibility. By you launching micro churches, you're not risking other people's lives, you're not spending a whole lot of money, uh, you're not requiring a whole lot of hardware, uh, and you're not holding the church down. A micro church, after all, Rick Warren started in a living room. A micro church can grow to be a mega church, and that would be a fine thing. But the main deal is a microchurch can penetrate culture in ways that we're not doing today and we can change the world around us. And that's a very good thing.